time of disintegrating empires. With the once great Byzantine Empire, the Second Rome, and the Abbasid Caliphate, existing in little more than name only, it was a time for a change. But to anyone watching, the mighty Mongol hordes which swept across Asia and took over much of the Middle East would seem to be the inheritors of this new age and not the tribes that fled from them. But looks were deceiving and it would be one of these small tribes fleeing from the Mongol hordes which would initiate a new era in history, five centuries, which would be known as the Ottoman period. Today we continue discussing the origins and the rise of the Ottoman Empire, the unlikely force which would shape both the Middle East and Europe for centuries to come. So please stay with us. left them, the Ottomans were a small tribal state just south and east of Constantinople, one of ten Turkish tribes in Anatolia, who were under the supposed rule of the Seljuks and the Mongol Ilkhan to the east. The founder of that state, whom we discussed last time, was Osman I. Now, unlike the pattern which would later become the norm in Ottoman history, Osman held sole power in his state, and his succession was smooth and undisputed. Now, when we look at later Ottoman history, just how rare this is, is remarkable. Osman died peacefully in 1326 after a long reign in his capital of Borsa, and was succeeded by his son Orhan, or sometimes written as Orhan, these are all romanizations of his name, who was his chosen successor, and who everybody knew was going to succeed and did. Osman's other son, Allah Adin, which, yes, it is the same name as the guy with the magic lamp and the guy in the Disney movies, uh, Allah Adin, which means highest religion, and he was known to be the more studious of the two, became the vizier, which comes from the Arabic word wazir, which even today means a minister like the foreign minister or the minister of defense. Uh, and in the Ottoman time, this would essentially be the prime minister. And this word vizier is even, is even used in history um, without being translated. Well, now just like with Osman, Orhan's history is full of legend, which makes everything sound nice. So when we read the history, we look and this guy's basically perfect. Uh, and of course, we know that's all cleaned up because of the later glories of his empire. But given how much the Ottomans would accomplish, we have to assume there is a lot of basis for uh, these things. So it is said that after Osman died, that Orhan proposed to his brother, Al-Adin, that they share ruling of the state. But Al-Adin said, no, Orhan was better suited to be the ruler. And Orhan said, well, he needed Allah Adin's advice and counsel and made him vizier. 
so it was you know very very wonderful very polite right you know being neither guy wanting to take all the power for himself and uh, working together now whatever the reality was of how they actually ended up in these positions this would be one of the few times in Ottoman history when succession would go smoothly um, Ottoman sultans would become famous for the tradition of killing off all their brothers with a silken cord uh, but that was later on now these two guys these two brothers are gonna make a good team and essentially run this state and just like the Arabs they had no rules for succession unlike in Europe where the oldest brother would inherit you know even if he was um, you know a lunatic um, this is not necessarily the way things would go in the Ottoman Empire until much later on so um, the Ottomans would eventually fall to the same pattern that we saw the Arabs did of having power struggles after uh, all of their rulers uh, died but that was in the future so however this division of power came about it seems to have worked out well for Allah Adin uh, became a, responsible for the administrative affairs of the state and he actually did a lot to establish this as a, uh, a really permanent government and a solid state bureaucracy that could expand. Orhan would be the first to actually call himself a sultan um, and uh, so he was more the, the military political leader. Okay, now it is said that Allah Adin was the one who suggested that the Ottomans formally break with their supposed uh, Seljuk overlords and become truly independent. Now they had been independent since Osman's time uh, in reality, uh, but we know that Orhan did this formally because the most formal uh, evidence of breaking off and becoming independent in these days was minting your own currency and so he started to have coins minted with his name on them which is a pretty concrete step that's not something you kinda do uh, cheaply I mean nowadays you got Bitcoin and electronic banking and we might forget what currency actually is right but it's essentially a marker of value issued in the name of a sovereign if you even if you read a dollar bill you mean it says supposedly this is a piece of paper that you can take down to the the bank and get gold for which of course you can't do anymore but uh, that was the intent of it so uh, putting putting your name on the currency meant that you were essentially um, independent because on one side uh, you would put a, you know a statement of, of about God and then on the other side you'd put the statement of the ruler so this basically saying okay this money belongs to God and his his deputy on earth is Orkhan uh, so that's that's pretty big step okay now in reality Allah Adin probably did this not just to uh, thumb the collective Ottoman nose at any supposed overlords I'm not trying to just show off but because he was actually establishing a finance system for the state and so he needed these kind of things to be to be working currency system exchange banking and so forth uh, and he did a lot of that now this is remarkable when we remember that the Ottomans were not long before this nomads from the steppe so they are becoming very settled 
uh, and we would think of the Ottomans, the image we have of them is not as a nomadic uh, empire of being a very, very settled empire uh, that basically absorbs everything from the Byzantines who are like about as bureaucratic as you could get. Okay, so Alaeddin is also credited with several major developments that he probably did and several more that are disputed. Now, the most significant of these was establishing a standing army. Uh, and this is something unusual because states didn't have these back then, particularly not in the Middle East. Uh, they would recruit volunteers. They had mercenaries. And some groups, of course, spent all their time fighting. Um, but the Ottoman armies, such that they were, up to this point were all volunteers, so to speak. I mean, this is the thing you did if you were a male citizen in the Ottoman state, you know, it was just understood. It was your duty uh, to go out and fight when necessary. I mean, kind of like medieval knights did. They had this sort of relationship uh, with the ruler. So Aladdin is going to establish a, a permanent standing army. Uh, and this he does several centuries before anyone in Europe. Uh, Charles VII of France is generally credited with being the first uh, European to do this uh, during the Hundred Years War, which is in the 1400s. So he's about a century before that. Now, of course, the last time we had a standing army was the Roman army, which of course was huge uh, and very, very formally organized, but they hadn't had one since that time. Uh, so we're, we're talking about a major uh, accomplishment. And it also indicates that you know you you don't intend to to go anywhere. You're not just a tribe sweeping your way from one place to another. Um, I mean, you're a permanent state. Now, the exact composition of the army is somewhat in question. Uh, the core of the army was the cavalry, which you would expect. These were horsemen. Uh, that's what the the Turks were. Uh, okay, and so the Sapahis which would become famous as the, the Ottoman cavalry, um, come from this. Uh, they had their origins as nomadic horse warriors, but now they were organized as a regular guard because now you're starting to fight longer wars. They're expanding. They're going to expand into Europe. And so you, you can't have just strictly um, cavalry, just strictly horse soldiers. So in front of these were the Azabs, which were basically infantry skirmishers, which is probably a charitable way to describe it. Uh, cannon fodder would be a least, uh, less, uh, less charitable way. Okay, these, these are not very um, well-trained troops, but folks you put out there in front. And of course, the they, they sort of pin down the enemy. They sort of shape the battlefield so the cavalry can come in and exploit it. Um, now, the most famous part and later infamous part of the Ottoman army is, of course, the Janissary Corps, who we'll talk more about in a later episode. Uh, and, but these are essentially slave warriors on the model of the Mamluks. Uh, it's alleged that Alaeddin created these as well. Uh, in fact, it's pretty much alleged that just about everybody in early Ottoman history uh, created the Janissary Corps. Most historians degree, uh, disagree. They will say that this 
this is really the next generation who does it. But part of it is is because this Janissary core, this idea of slave warriors who are, at least at the beginning, very loyal to the Sultan, it develops slowly. So during the time of Orkhan, this is like his bodyguard uh, that he uses, uh, Mamluk warriors. Uh, and they're called the Janissaries in Turkish. Uh, and this, this has a long tradition and will continue to have a long tradition, by the way. Uh, Napoleon's personal guard were the Mamluks as well. Okay, so the beginnings, we can call it the beginnings of the Janissary Corps is there, but definitely the idea of a, a standing army is, is definitely created at this time. Uh, Alaeddin also formalized the government bureaucracy, um, which you know, in our, our day and time, sounds like a bad thing, but, it, you know, a little bit of bureaucracy is a useful thing. And, uh, I mean, this, he formalized government departments and, and so forth, which really, again, makes the Ottomans a much more settled state. And this was easy to do and necessary to do because they're taking over Byzantine territory, really, which is right outside the capital of Constantinople. So they're taking over some pretty organized, urbanized uh, areas. So the pattern is already there for them. The local expertise is there. And, and so they can graft onto this pretty easily. And also there's a necessity to do this because you're going to become the rulers of people who are used to this sort of thing. And so you want to provide the same services that the Byzantines did. Uh, okay, so they, they do that, and it's also Alaeddin's idea to have an official uniform for government workers. And again, this comes from the Byzantines, uh, and so they, they do. Um, now, the Byzantines, they had very, very elaborate costumes that they wore, kind of like Chinese mandarins did. The Ottoman uniform is much more simple, and the thing that distinguishes it is a white, cone-shaped hat, a conical hat with white sides on it. And if you look at any pictures of early uh, early Ottomans, they're, they're wearing this. Now this sounds like a small detail, but it's a big step in visually marking out members of the government service for everyone's notice. So if we're going from a tribal background where things sort of work around a family um, structure where there's deals made based on, you know, with different power holders. Now you're having full-time government workers and you're putting a uniform on them so everybody can recognize that this is a government functionary. Okay, so it's, um, you know, that's an important step. Okay, all right, so he does a lot to really get this Ottoman state started and formalized, and it's going to be the kernel of, of course, a huge empire. Now, although the two of them started out together. Alaeddin only lives to age 40, 
and he was only vizier for about eight years, so it's not that long a period, compared to his brother Orchan, who lives to age 80 and is the ruler for 60 of those years. Uh, and here again, Allah Adain's death was natural. Uh, Orchan had nothing to do with it. He didn't strangle his brother, which, um, you know, if you know about Ottoman history later on, this would be the natural thing to suspect. Uh, but it seems like they got along well, and uh, he didn't have anything to do with the death of his brother. Okay, so if Orchan uh, is the warrior and the leader, he did very well himself. So he's got his brother taking care of all the administrative functions so he doesn't have to worry about them. Uh, and by the time Orchan dies, after his 60 years of reign, um, the Ottoman state is going to expand to be... Uh, fairly large, but also very strategic in that it's basically surrounding Constantinople, uh, surrounding the Straits, and so this is very, very important land. And all this comes at the expense of the Byzantines, of course. Um, now, admittedly, the Byzantines do a lot to help them, um, really, so if they weren't trying to lose, they were certainly doing a good impression of it. Uh, no, in, in fairness, it's easy for us to look back and from a macro perspective and see this big civilization versus this small one and say, you know, why didn't they just get their act together, pool all their resources, and hold off the conquerors? But, you know, when we look at things going on in our world, it's easy to see this. I mean, my gosh, we got... Half the population doesn't want to get a free vaccine for a pandemic. Okay, so, you know, it's really easy to see how a divided empire cannot pull their uh, act together. In the micro perspective, it's just like the situation with Spain. Uh, you don't see one Christian empire being swallowed up by a growing Muslim empire and say, why don't they do something about it? We've got all sorts of factions fighting, and at times uh, Byzantines cooperate with Turks against other Byzantines, and it seems like the best deal for them. And there's a lot of this going on. So, if we're picking up from last episode, if you remember the last time, uh, the Byzantines, who really by this point can't do much of their own fighting, uh, and they are torn apart with internal divisions, they had imported a group of mercenaries from Spain to fight against the Turks. But then the mercenaries get out of control, and the Byzantine emperor decides to have their leader beheaded, which didn't sit very well with them. So, of course, they decided to join up with the Turks. Now, just as a general rule of thumb, this thing happens many, many times over and over again in the Crusades, in the Reconquista, and in Anatolia. And so for every instance we have of a Christian force fighting a Muslim one, you can find instances of Christian and Muslim forces teaming up against, you know, another Christian force. So this is going on a lot. Okay, uh, so... The Byzantines are, you know, they are really desperate. They're bringing in outside forces to help them, but they can't control them once they get there. Um, so 
From the Ottoman side, Orhan's rule starts out rather peacefully. He has a 20-year peace with the Byzantines, and this may have continued longer, who knows, but it's going to be broken by a series of civil wars on the Byzantine side. And so these generally uh, surround the ascension of the new Byzantine emperor, John Paleologos, or John V, who happened to be nine years old at the time. Now his father, who's now the dead emperor, he it's not like he didn't take this into consideration. He knew he had a young son, and he appoints his friend as the regent for the young emperor. But his mother, Anna, who was also from a powerful family of her own, she had her own faction that wanted to supervise the new emperor. And I mean, basically being the, the guardian of the emperor means you're, you're running the empire in his name. And so... This disagreement starts the first Byzantine civil war of 1343. And we have to number them because there's going to be a bunch of them in a short time. And even though this is an internal conflict about which family within the Byzantine inner circle, you know, gets to control the emperor, the beneficiaries of this are going to be the Ottomans. Um, and in fairness, we, we can't say they're like vultures. They only got involved in this because they were invited in. Now, would they have gotten involved anyways? And would they have exploited the situation eventually? Who knows? Probably. That kind of makes sense. But, you know, the Byzantines are doing such a good job making it easy for them. They don't really have to worry about this. So as it turns out, uh, John Paleologos ends up being emperor for 50 years. Now this is quite deceptive, however, because he doesn't really have any power for much of this time. I mean, at one point he's even co-emperor, which is like a ridiculous concept. Um, but is this situation of having a weak emperor and everybody trying to jockey for power within the Byzantine Empire, which opens up the doors for the Ottomans, who have been just growing and growing, getting stronger and uh, more organized, and they're going to be the beneficiaries. Now, if you study Byzantine history, this may be interesting to you. It's only significant to us. I mean, we don't care who is uh, the emperor of this, I mean, basically rump state, city state at this point. It's important to us only in that it creates the climate in which the Ottomans are going to become powerful. And so the basic scenario here is we have a succession of wars inside the Byzantine Emperor for control and all involving this inner circle of families, and it's like a soap opera. But the other characteristic of these wars is that the Byzantines really can't fight them themselves, so they've got to bring in out all these outside forces, or at least foreign allies, to fight for them. And as, as you've heard me repeat countless times on this show, you know, bringing in outside forces to fight for you is about as smart as jumping off a skyscraper. Uh, and it, it turns out the most powerful are going to take over, and that's the Ottomans. 
And Constantinople is still a very rich city. I mean, the emperor may be a joke at this point, but this is a very, very rich city. It's a trading metropolis and so forth. So if you're a mercenary, it's a lucrative place to go and make money. And at one point, Anna, who we mentioned, the mother of the young emperor, uh, she actually pawns the crown jewels to Venice uh, for help, which is a good sign that things are not going well for the empire. You know, um, and John himself, uh, he tries to get rid of his pesky uncle, uh, the one that, that Anna wants to in, appoint over him by bringing in a force of Serbian mercenaries. Okay, so this goes on, uh, and eventually uh, John, John V, the, the, the designated emperor, he does get the crown all for himself for a while. But as it turns out, his cousin, that is the son of the guy he just got rid of, tries to take back the throne. He needs a force of allies to help him. And so he looks all around to see who are the good fighters in the area. And as was bound to happen at some point in this story, he decides that the Ottomans would be the best allies to help him. Again, from a long-term perspective, this just seems ridiculous, right? He's basically signing the death warrant for the Byzantine Empire to become um, the Ottoman Empire. But... You know, to him, he's got the, this uncle and cousin who are you know trying to take over his power. So this is what he does. Now, this is not just a simple military alliance, however. Um, so what happens is this cousin, this usurper who wants to be emperor himself, he marries his daughter, who is Princess Theodora, to Orchan. And they have a son, Khalil. This, of course, binds the two sides closely together. The idea is, well, you can't just go over and switch and join the other side uh, because now we, we have blood invested in this. Uh, but this also really dispels any pretense that this is a religious war, Muslim versus Christian, of course. So the Ottomans provide 20,000 soldiers, which is a lot particularly in this environment, and they occupy the Gallipoli Peninsula, which will, of course, become famous later on. And the leader of these Ottoman forces is Orhan's oldest son, Suleiman Pasha. Now, there's a lot of Suleimans in Ottoman history, so don't confuse him with any of the later, more famous Suleimans. Uh, at this point, he is just the main military leader, and he is the presumed heir to the sultanate. He's supposed to be the next sultan. Uh, Suleiman, Suleiman is the uh, the Turkish here for Solomon, like King Solomon, which is a very popular uh, name with the Ottomans. Okay, so uh, what is significant here is because of this situation, because he's invited in, uh, because he's now married to this contender for the Byzantine throne, the Ottomans are taking permanent territory on the European side of the Straits. Okay, so now they're no longer in Asia, they're, they're getting into Europe. Okay, so anyways, we mentioned uh, Emperor John V on the other side. He had brought in Serbian forces to help him win back his territory. 
And so I don't even need to tell you what the Serbs are going to do. Their leader, Stephen, who now considers himself a separate emperor and not part of the Byzantine uh, Empire, decides to establish his own Serbian Empire. Okay, so uh, to counterbalance him, the other side brings in another uh, 20,000 Ottoman troops to help them. And they will. They will defeat this Serbian Empire and basically uh, get rid of it. But this means now that they are really, really well established and taking even more territory on the European side of the Straits. Now, if the writing on the wall were not clear to the Byzantines, it certainly was to everyone else. Uh, Stephen, who is the Serbian leader, who can see the way things are going, can see that the Ottomans are really the strongest force around here, he proposes a marriage of his daughter to the Ottoman Sultan to make an alliance between them. Uh, this doesn't end up happening, but it's just showing, okay, the, the Ottomans are the strongest, everyone wants to marry into them and, you know, basically uh, end up serving them. Uh, nevertheless, with all this going on, by having invited the Ottomans in to fight in the Byzantine Civil War, the Byzantines have basically opened the door for them uh, to establish a strong Ottoman presence in the Balkans. And now they are also intermarried uh, with the Byzantine royal family, and so they're going to have a claim. Now, this sounds like a stupid thing to do, or at least a selfish and myopic thing to do from our perspective of big historical trends. If you want to talk about a thousand-year Christian empire being vanquished by a horde of nomads from the Asian steppes. If you're looking at the reality of politics, um, you know, this is just a, a, a move to try and hold on to what power you have. Okay, now, in fairness, though, when the Byzantines do lose, uh, that sort of grand story is spread all over Europe to try and raise a crusade to come and save them. But this is really only true in the most abstract and very artificial big-picture view. Okay, now, I'm not trying to say here that the royal family was dumb. Uh, I mean, it was definitely self-defeating, and they were eventually going to get taken over by somebody. But what I would say, though, is if you're seeing the Ottomans um, as worse allies than any of these other groups, that's really artificial. I mean, that's only when someone looks at this from a big picture perspective and sees one religion versus another. Okay, I mean, despite uh, all the religious crusading we think of, that's not the way they're looking at it. I mean, this was... This was the best allies that they could come up with. Okay, so it's clear that the Byzantines are divided and incapable of fighting their own battles. But the Ottomans, at least in 1340, are very united and have strong single authority. Okay, this is a group where the two potential contenders for the throne team up and work together to use their individual talents. You know, meanwhile, on the Byzantine side, you know, mom and dad's individual choices to supervise Junior are destroying the empire he's supposed to inherit. Now, if this were not bad enough, you might recognize the dates we're talking about, mid-1300s. Yes, that's the Black Plague time, and it's going to have a devastating impact 
on a settled big city like Constantinople. True, Constantinople was the greatest city of the age, a cultural marvel, and so forth, but the hygiene practices in the 1300s, uh, especially in Europe, are pretty disgusting by 21st century standards. So uh, for us, still, or at least coming off uh, a time of hand sanitizer and masks and social distancing, I mean, we're talking about people who, you know, throw their own uh, filth into the streets. Okay, now the Turks are at least a little better po poised to deal with this. You know, they come from a religion where you're supposed to wash five times a day. Okay, so the Black Plague really devastates Europe. Uh, I mean, they lose a third of their population, as some estimates go. And despite the this, or maybe because of this fact, uh, there are devastating wars going on in Europe, the Hundred Years' War, which is probably the longest single war in history, is raging during this time. And so they're taking advantage of the weakness of other states. Uh, and it's terrible. On uh, the large banking houses of Italy, which were really the economic superpowers of the day, uh, they're really in bad shape because of the drop-off from all the trade as a result of the, the plague. So things are very bad in Europe. The rivalry between the Roman Catholic Church and the Greek Orthodox Church is, is heating up. Um, their relationship has always been tricky, uh, but when the Byzantine Empire, which is essentially the Orthodox Empire, is in danger, uh, the Catholic Church sees this as a way to assert itself. And Petrarch writes a letter to Pope Urban where he says, quote, The Ottomans are merely enemies. The schismatic Greeks are worse than enemies. End quote. And this is the way they act. Uh, and they, they really facilitate things for the Ottomans by doing this. So the, the Greek Orthodox Church has been separate from the Catholic Church really since the 11th century. I mean, they've been separate in reality for a lot longer than that, but officially they've split uh, since the uh, 11th century. But the Emperor John is in such bad shape that, I mean, he needs outside help, and the only way he can get outside help is by pledging loyalty to the Catholic Church. He, he's particularly looking to get Hungarian troops at this time. So in 1369, John goes to Rome, uh, he publicly confesses the errors and sins of the Orthodox Church, how they were wrong to defy the Catholics, uh, and he basically makes the Orthodox Church, you know, subordinate to the Catholic Church, or at least for a time, he tries. So this gets some troops from the Hungarian Empire, uh, but they just get defeated, and defeating them just brings the Ottomans deeper into Europe. Okay. Um, and, and so now Constantinople is really getting surrounded by Ottomans. Now, at this point, really up to this point, it might have been difficult for Byzantines to recognize the Ottomans as being any bigger danger than any of the other Turkish tribes in Anatolia. Uh, but by now, it's becoming pretty clear. Uh, one may not have predicted how big the Ottoman state would eventually get, but I think if Las Vegas were around and giving odds in the mid-1300s, 
on Byzantines versus Ottomans, I think the smart bet would be on the Ottomans at this point. Although we have to keep repeating this, Constantinople is going to survive for another century, remarkably, given the fact that, I mean, they're really down to nothing at this point. I mean, we're talking about a city with big walls, and, and that's about it. Also, however, we have to realize that, I mean, the Ottomans, they're, they're not like the Mongols. They're not on a rampaging conquest. They are building a very stable state with deep roots. Uh, and, you know, Orhan is doing as much by diplomacy as by battle. I mean, he's not looking to wipe out the Byzantines. He's looking to marry into their families and so forth. Um, now, they will, of course, they'll be depicted in, in Europe. I mean, after Constantinople does fall, I mean, the way it's preached in the churches of Europe, it's, it's like the Mongol hordes had come through. But, I mean, that's not really what they are. Uh, Orhan has a long-term strategy, and he definitely intends to keep all the territory he has occupied and to run it and to administer it. Okay, so uh, this is going along, you know, fairly slowly, perhaps, but uh, Orhan is going to get a big break, so to speak, in 1357, and this is going to happen uh, when his son... Khalil, remember this is the one as the son of Orhan and the Byzantine princess Theodora. Uh, their son Khalil is kidnapped by pirates from Genoa. And I mean they have been pirates from Genoa, Venice, they've been attacking the Byzantine coast for, for decades now. Um, now you would think this would be a bad thing. You know, if someone says pirates just kidnapped your son, uh, you, you would tend to be a little bit upset. But things were different back then. For one, taking hostages and ransoming them was pretty standard business uh, at this time. Okay, so this, this thing was going on all the time. And Orhan is the mighty Ottoman sultan. And so he's not going to let any petty thieves uh, push him around. But in this case, however, um, it's not in his interest to go in directly and get Khalil back. I mean, he's got the money to buy Khalil back if he wanted to, and he's certainly got the power um, to go get Khalil uh, if he wanted to. But Khalil, of course, is not just an, uh, an Ottoman uh, you know, prince, essentially. He's also the nephew of the Byzantine emperor, okay, as well. Okay, and they have treaties between them. Now, Orhan is by far the more powerful partner in these treaties, uh, and the Byzantines are pretty much sunk without his support, but technically, right, these are separate states who are allied by marriage, and so Orhan directs the Byzantine emperor to go get Khalil back. And they try. The Byzantines try to get him back, but, I mean, they are so weak, they have no chance of defeating these pirates uh, at all. Orhan knows this, uh, but he wants it to play out. He wants to show and have them admit how helpless they are. So finally, the Byzantine emperor has to come to Orhan and admit he can't carry out the mission. And so fine, Orhan will go get Khalil back, but this means obviously he wants a new treaty with the Byzantines since you are no longer capable of uh, fulfilling your responsibilities here. And so uh, he, he will. He will force a new treaty on them, 
And this treaty essentially is going to make the Byzantine emperor a vassal of the Ottoman sultan. Now later on, uh, the, the Byzantine Empire will become an official vassal of the Ottoman Sultan. But for all practical purposes, I mean, that's what it is. It's, it's, it's a vassal state. So um, the Ottomans haven't conquered Constantinople, but they, I mean, they're basically in charge of it at this point. Okay, well, a pretty bad situation for the Byzantines, uh, you would admit. Now, you may be asking at this point, but what about the people? You know, we're talking about emperors and, and such. How do the local people feel about all this Turkish conquest? Well, of course, the opinions of big religious leaders aside, for the average citizen of the Balkans, uh, Turkish rule is probably better for them overall than Byzantine rule, or whatever shambles of Byzantine rule remains. I mean, for one thing, I mean, as we've seen, the Byzantines can't police this area. They can't, they really can't administer it. Um, and the, the Turks can. I mean, the Ottomans come in, uh, they got good systems, and they're powerful, and so, I mean, you have effective government. But also, uh, basically, the conditions at this time is basically feudalism and they're the feudal peasants are exceedingly pressed to support a dying emperor right so you know the idea of feudalism is you have to pay to the the overlord uh, but the, the byzantine empire is in such bad shape i mean they're extracting everything they can from the peasants and they're offering little to them in return Instead, with the Ottomans, you get a strong central state. We have religious freedom, for, I mean, for the most part. Um, the end to the feudal system. And uh, as the Muslim conquerors have always been careful to ensure, you know, you actually have a lower tax rate. Um, the difference, though, is Ottoman territory is safe and stable. Uh, when they come in, you know, you don't have to worry about bandits and pirates. And so, you know, for the average citizen, a Christian citizen of the Balkans, hey, being Ottoman rule is better than um, the alternative, the, the Byzantines and the mess that they are. Okay, despite that, despite that happy picture, uh, that is not to say that there are no religious wars. There are crusades. Now, of course, the Europeans have lost all their crusader states in the Middle East um, by this point. But there is still enough anger at the idea of these, these Muslim incursions, these infidels, to justify a few very weak crusades. And most of these basically, and even though the Pope officially blesses them, it's basically um, Hungarians, Hungary, uh, coming in and fighting, and they're defeated pretty easily. And now, um, again, I mean, the, the pattern that's going on here of the European Christians just making this so easy for the Ottomans, 
Um, yes, the they're launching crusades. Some they launch a few feeble crusades against uh, the the Ottomans, but most of the crusading is going on is against so-called heretics in Europe, like you know Orthodox, so Catholic against Orthodox heretics and and all other types of heretics. Okay, so we would say from our perspective, we would say it's Christian versus Christian, but I mean, of course they didn't see it that way. They didn't consider these people uh, Christians, and you know just like the quote I gave you earlier from Petrarch, you know, the, well the Muslims are one thing, but these heretics they're even worse. Uh, so this happens is that the Crusaders, even when they come into the Byzantine territory, they're supposed to fight the, the Ottomans, uh, but they end up fighting other Christian sects, all of which is, is, is working fabulously uh, towards cementing Ottoman power here. Okay, wow. So... Uh, this time period, the mid-1300s, may also sound familiar to you for other reasons. And this is the time of that great traveler Ibn Battuta. So remember, Ibn Battuta gives us a, a snapshot of the world in 1320 to 1340. Uh, and he does visit Orkhan. Okay, so in the time he's making his journey, um, even though the Ottoman state is still fairly small, it, it's really... Um, despite the the gains in Europe, the part in, in Asia that they hold is really still about the northeast corner of Turkey. Okay, But even despite this, uh, Ibn Battuta recognizes Orhan's greatest. And when he lists uh, the great powers, like he lists the six great rulers of the world, and of course his Sultan of Morocco is number one uh, in his eyes, um, he, he lists Orhan as the great Turk. And this is significant because, as I said, there, there are many Turkish states, and he visits many of them. But he can recognize at this time, um, even though they're still small, that Orhan is, is the most powerful of these Turkish states. And that's the way that Ibn Battuta identifies him. Uh, now, he, Ibn Battuta, of course, visits Constantinople as well. Now, interestingly... Um, the, the way he got to Constantinople is he was in, you know, what is now um, the Ukraine or southern Russia. He was visiting the Golden Horde, which is the, the Mongol state in, in Russia. Uh, and he is tasked to escort a daughter um, of the emperor. So another daughter of the Byzantine emperor has been married off to the Mongol ruler up north. So we can see the Byzantine, you can see how desperate they are. I mean, they're marrying off their daughters to everyone, to the Mongols up north, to the Ottomans over here uh, in the south, and, and they're doing everything they can to stay alive. Okay, so uh, Ibn Battuta, he describes Orkhan as the greatest of the king of the Turkmens and the richest in wealth, lands, and military forces. He says of fortresses, he possesses nearly a hundred, and for most of his time he is continually engaged in making a round of them, staying at each fortress for some days to put it in good order and examine its condition. It is said that he has never stayed for a whole month in one town. 
He also fights with the infidels continually and keeps them under siege. End quote. That is a quote of Ibn Battuta about Orchan. And so it's describing the situation. He is taking these these castles and these towns and he's fortifying them and he's very very active in going and inspecting them. Alright well Orchan dies in 1362 from natural causes. Um, he is buried in Borsa just like his father. You can visit the spot uh, there and his son Suleiman who is the intended heir dies shortly before this in a hunting accident. Uh, and it, it, this, it is truly believed to be an accident. Uh, and we have to stress this because this is like the, the last of the natural deaths that we're going to get. Okay, so instead of Suleiman, the rule passes to his uh, son Murad. Murad is not the next one uh, chronologically in line but he's the, the next one in, in prominence and preference. He will be known as Murad I. Uh, of course, everybody's first at this point. Uh, and along with his father and grandfather, these are considered the three great founding sultans of the Ottoman Empire. Now, this state is certainly not an empire at this point, and it's not even certain that they're going to take over the rest of Byzantine Empire. Uh, we've seen upstart states to become powerful, conquer more land than this even, and then end up losing it. Um, but that pattern, uh, despite the fact of the Ottomans with their nomadic roots, is going to be, they're going to be an exception to that because they're building very strong institutions and infrastructure, uh, right, like Orhan visiting his, his hundred fortresses uh, and very slowly and deliberately build their state in order to last. Um, so when they do take Constantinople, they are in the position to be a long-lasting uh, empire. Uh, this, by the way, was one of the questions on the comprehensive exam for the master's degree in Near Eastern Studies in, at Princeton many years ago. I don't know. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this. Spoiler alert. Okay, the, the test has changed, I'm sure. But this was one of the one of the questions you had to answer. Essay question is: How would you explain the longevity and influence of the Ottoman Empire compared to the Mongol Empire? Right. I mean, the the Mongols have just swept through and conquered half the known world at this point, uh, and wiped out everything that could oppose them. Uh, the Ottomans are this tiny little state that are moving slowly. How would you explain the fact that one of them lasts 500 years and the other one doesn't? Well, this is what we're describing. It's a very different outlook on how you approach this. And so thus ends the life of the second of the three founding sultans of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, next time we'll talk about Murad, we'll talk about the formation of the Janissary Corps and the beginning of this image that we have of the Ottoman army. And so we hope to see you then. We hope you will join us. Again, thank you very much for your kind support. We look forward to seeing you then. Shukran Jazilin. Wa ma salam.